Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. And then one day I realised, oh, I've never met anybody like this man. And what I'm feeling is probably means that I'm in love with them. And that was just infinitely sad because I knew he was a great priest and therefore there was no future in it. And then... Did you tell him? I did. And what did he say? Well, I've heard some fascinating life stories in my time doing this podcast, but surely Terry Prones is up there with one of the best. Terry is a writer, an actor, would you believe, which I never knew, a journalist, a broadcaster, an advisor to successive governments, obviously a communications expert, a PR pioneer. The list goes on and on. And after already writing 30 books, she's finally written the one that tells her own life story. It's called Caution to the Wind, a memoir, and it is simply a fascinating read. Terry talks as well as she writes, and in our chat she shares some brilliant stories about the love of her life, the late Tom Savage, who was in fact a priest when they first met. Her close working relationship with the legendary Gay Byrne, coaching politicians, the secret to powerful communications, and tons more. Talk to me about what you want the people in the congregation to understand. And he got raging. And he said, the good Lord told us that we were to be the shepherds of his flock. And before I could stop myself, I said, yeah, not the sheepdogs. And there was this deadly silence. Gay suddenly turned to him and said, are you gay? And the priest froze. And after a minute, he said, I I was promised by your researcher that I wouldn't be asked that. And Gay said, my researchers don't speak for me. Are you gay? Wow. And I've been doing all the things ever since. Boom, boom. I've been doing the pointing and the air guitar. Thanks to Terry (laughs) Boom Boom Prone. Thank you, sir. None of this is true. I do need (laughs) to state that loud and clear just in case anybody listening believes it for even a half a second. My full chat with Terry Prone is coming up in just a couple of minutes, and I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Uh, did you catch the last two episodes in the series? My two-part chat with Mihal Martin. There was a massive response to it. Um, Mihal did impressions, took calls from Roy Keane, Michael Healy Ray, etc. Please have a listen and share it with a friend. Tell one other person about the Mario Rosenstock podcast if you enjoyed that episode or indeed the episode coming up. Uh, but listen, as usual, the Mario Rosenstock hotline has been hopping. Who's been calling this week? Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. Uh, yeah, yeah, hi, Mario. Uh, this is uh, Tishik Leo Varadkar here. Um, uh, a bit of a strange one. I was supposed to have a communications uh, slash uh, PR uh, session with uh, Terry Prode uh, today. She said something about uh, being on your podcast could you tell her I'm in her office and I'm kind of waiting. I'm on 6-1 tonight and I need to, you know, figure out what the, what the hell I'm going to say, you know. So if she can get here as quickly as possible, I'm, I'm kind of desperate. Thanks. Hello, this is Michael McGrath, Minister for Finance. I uh, understand you had a lot of messages about the budget uh, this week. 
So I hope everybody uh, got what they wanted from Budget 2020. Michael, there's no need for a budget follow-up. No need to be sucking up to the but listeners. Pascal, I'm just no, 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 just get off the off. fucking phone, will you, you fanta head? Jesus, Jesus get off the phone now. Hi Mario, this is Brian O'Driscoll. <laughs> uh, just ringing to um, wish Ireland all the best against the the All Blacks this weekend in in the in the World Cup quarter final. But also to to inform your listeners that the um, hot on the heels of the David Beckham documentary on Netflix, um, Netflix are premiering um, their brand new documentary at home with Brian and Amy, <laughs> which is which is really controversial. So just. You know, wow, wait and see. What what could it be? Thanks. <laughs> okay, let's meet my special guest on this episode. The great Terry Prone. You are probably already familiar with Terry from her regular appearances on radio, TV and in print, where she shares her always interesting views on the big news stories. But how much do you know about the person behind these opinions? Well, you're about to find out. You're about to learn a lot more about Terry Prone. Terry, you're very welcome to the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Thank you. Why did you do it? Because I was deadly intrigued. And also, when you have a new book, like my Caution to the Wind, you have to do relentless self-promotion everywhere. That's no problem to you. Oh, it is. Oh, listen, the thing about the work that I do, um, improving people for going on radio and television, is that you get to ask all the questions and spot talent and do all that. Whereas once it's just down to you trying to convince somebody like you that I'm interesting, insightful, charismatic, harmless even, uh, that's much more difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the fact that you're interesting is is unassailable, really. I mean, because of the amount of things you've done in your life. I have them written down here in front of me, some of which I didn't even know, right? Journalist, tick, broadcaster, tick, advisor, communications expert, PR guru, PR pioneer, author, actress... Which we'll get, she's nodding her head. Don't nod your head on radio, just say yes. <laughs> yes, okay. sir. I'm sorry to be a communications <laughs> advisor to you, okay? And I would advise you as well that I will be taking communications lessons from you th- during this conversation. Splendid so if stuff. you have any tips you want to give me, you can give them um, and I will take them um, with, you know, a certain amount of dignity. Um, and say. So journalist, broadcaster, actress and all this sort of stuff, what, what title would you like best? Writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've published 30 books Mm. in all, which is sort of a book every two years of my adult life. And that has always been the most fun, just the most fun. And I remember when the German edition of my novel Racing the Moon arrived, everybody in the office fell on it immediately because there's a character in it, the sort of heroine, uh, and she swears in a particularly Dublin kind of way. And they were dying to know what the equivalent words in German were. And they were extremely disappointed that the Germans just put in the Irish uh, profanity Hmm. and left it at that. Okay, well, I'm intrigued to know that you were an actress when you started. Tell me about that. Acting was something that... Uh, I got bitten by when I I had a major accident when I was about four and I had to go to elocution lessons to be taught to speak again. What was the accident? My birthday present was a tricycle and I headed, I lived in a place called Mount Prospect Grove. Did I know at the time that it was on a hill? No. So I started off at what was the top of the hill and gained speed inexorably and 
I was four, I didn't know about brakes. And so at the bottom of the hill, I collided with a lamppost and the handlebars of the bike went into my mouth and did my mouth the most incredible damage. And after surgery, I was, you'd be delighted to know, speechless. And so (laughs) I had to go to elocution classes with Miss McCluskey and Clontarf. And I, I suppose it was meant to be remedial. But at some stage, we got taught these two poems. One was about Bunny Rabbit creeps out and caresses his nose. And uh, the other one, I didn't figure it mattered because I knew that we were going to the fish. And if you were really good, you might get recalled. So I didn't figure that was going to happen. And I made a complete cock up of it from the word go, went out on stage, forgot about the adjudicator, did Bunny Rabbit. (laughs) And in due course, 12 of us were called back. Great. And I was among them. I won first prize. (laughs) And my mother, who was the most fantastic opportunist, had me across the river to a newspaper within minutes of the win. And my picture was in the paper the following day. And I decided there and then, I was seven, I was going to be an Abbey actress. No problem. And then when I was just under 16, the Abbey decided to have their own school of acting. Mm. And I went for auditions. And I'll never forget the auditions because there was one young lad who actually became a very famous actor subsequently. But he did... Who was it? I'm not telling you. Donald um, McCann. <laughs> no, it was, I will tell Ray you. Ray McAnally. I'll tell you about Donald McCann in a minute if you really want the dirt. Um, this young lad did Brutus's speech over Caesar and he used a bar stool as, as Caesar's body, which was kind of a mistake because it was covered in chewing gum when you turned it over and mm. it was a, a big distraction. But he was so good that you could see he was going to be one of the ones selected. And the person in charge was a man named Walter Mackin. He was a writer. Mm. And he picked a few of us, including an actor named Joe Dowling that I knew. and um, The famous director then. Exactly. (coughs) And gave us scholarships. And Mm. it was so exciting. That's so exciting. Because even back then, I suppose even more back then, the Abbey would have been regarded as a kind of a world-renowned theatre. Yes, it was. Mm. And it was the mecca for any... I mean, to get on stage, to get to say a line was just so thrilling. And so this was you for a while. This was me for a while. And it was one of the most important things for everything that I did afterwards. Because you know, you know so much from the theatre. You know the difference between a Monday audience and a Saturday audience. Mm. You know exactly the level of laugh that Mm. you want on a certain line but enough of a laugh left over for the follow-up line. You mm. you know the gobshite in the fifth row mm. who opens in great detail mm. a box of sweets slowly and carefully mm. and crinkly. Mm. And you know which of the other performers are actors acting mm. and which are the ones that are just... Being... In the moment. And it's just, and it's, it's, you, I learned all the lessons probably that I needed to learn for later 
communications training, including because I was hearing dialogue all yeah. the time, realizing, oh, there's a hell of a difference between the spoken word and the written word, which most script writers don't really realize. They write as if they were writing an essay instead of writing the way people actually talk. Well, that's very interesting. So this is, in a sense, your first exposure then to how language affects a live audience. Exactly. How, um, how, how a character affects an audience, how the putting on of a character or how the entrance of another type of character affects the mood and nuance of the of, of the feeling in the audience. And of course, this is your whole life then. Your whole life has really been built around helping people perform in front of audiences, whether it's television or radio audiences. So in a sense, you've become a kind of a, a kind of a director as well yourself, maybe starting off as a person who's had a little bit of experience in the theatre. But Actor, politicians, for example, who you and CEOs and stuff like that, they have to appear in front of people all the time and in a sense perform and they perform all the time. I remember, for example, just when you talked about the audience there, I did a thing with Michael D. Higgins in, in 2011. And at the time he was running for the presidency and he was going to appear on the Ian Dempsey breakfast show. And we had asked him to appear on the Ian Dempsey breakfast show and he was told Mario's going to be Michael D. now. Are you OK with that? And he said, that's fine. And we're going to be down in this hotel in Galway and there'll be a big crowd there. And will you come in and do a poem with Mario? Both of you, Michael D. <laughs> and Mario will read Mario will read the dirty bits and you'll read the, the, the good bits so that we don't embarrass you. And so Danny came to Galway and the crowd were in. The crowd were in. There was about 200 people there. Room was stuffed. And I'd heard that Michael D had arrived outside the door. And I said, I'll go out and see him to make him uh, feel comfortable. So I went out to the front door and I saw him. And the first thing he said to me was, what are they like in there? <laughs> all he wanted to know about was the audience. Yes. And I knew as an actor that all he wanted to hear was, they're going to love you. Mm. And that's it. That's all he needed to hear. And as soon as they, he walked in, they went nuts and the whole thing went fine. But the whole thing was, he wanted to know who his audience were and will they be OK? That's the central thing of my whole life. Yeah. And it's the one thing that it's kind of a recurring problem that people think, OK, I'm going to go along to Terry Brown and she's going to teach me tricks. And increasingly these days, she's going to teach me what to wear and what kind of hairdo to have. And they don't realise it's not about them. It is first and foremost, but who is it that they want to reach? And if going back to the theatre for a minute, when you're starting in the theatre, you do prompting. You sit in the, the wings with the script in front of you. You concentrate ferociously because out of the blue, an actor may suddenly go blank and not know their lines. So I'm prompting in the wings this day, this night. And it's a production of a Lady Gregory play called Dervagilla about the woman who fell in love with Dermot McMurrah and the Normans came and on that just. Anyway, it's the final scene. And the actor, Joan O'Hara, is on her knees, all on her own in the middle of the stage, spotlight on her. And she is doing a soliloquy about the regrets of her life. And I'm watching her mesmerised because real tears are falling down her cheeks. And I'm thinking, I wonder, will I ever be able to cry real tears on stage? And a, an actor who was in the production named Ray McAnally came up behind me 
and obviously saw what I was doing and he took my shoulders and moved me slightly and then he leaned down because I was now facing the audience and he leaned down and he whispered, are they crying? And I suddenly realised, shit, they weren't crying. They were doing exactly what I was doing. They were admiring the fact that she could cry, but it moved them not. And that was a really seminal moment, a thing of, no, no, it's not about your performance at them. It's about what emotions you help. I mean, that's another thing. Sorry. Mm. When people talk to me about, oh, teaching politicians to be like actors, I'm going, what's your problem with that? Actors tell a great truth. Actors make an audience see and feel and understand stuff that they wouldn't otherwise. It isn't a falseness. It isn't a a kind of a dissimulation. It's, It's real. And that definitely is what I'm always trying Mm. to get with politicians. Interesting. What about this? That in a sense, what you're trying to do is you're not trying to make them fake themselves. You're trying to make them be the best possible version of themselves, of which there are many versions of us. Oh, yeah. So of, of each human being, we are, let's say, I take myself. I won't speak about anybody else. I am a shambolic, pathetic, uh, fearful wreck at times. I am a confident dramatic, powerful speaker at times. I am um, uh, an arrogant, mistake-ridden fool at times. I'm all these things. And what you're there is to do is to go to find, to channel the best version of me. But it is still me. First of all, we have always said, look, folks, um, when anybody says to you, just be yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Give them a foot in the arse for yeah, starters because we have so many selves. Yeah. We had years and years ago this wonderful man from a shipping line whose chairman had told him that he was to join one of our courses whether he liked it or not and he really didn't like it. And so he told his assistant to ring at 12 o'clock and say there was an emergency so that he could satisfy his chairman by saying that he came to us but then go home anyway. And my wonderful husband, Tom, was doing, he had, we'd recorded everything and then a presentation was being played back. And this man, his name was Brendan Bird, is still Brendan Bird, he hasn't changed it, um, is looking at this particular presentation, which is by an accountant and saying, that is complete bullshit. And if that guy, meaning Tom Savage, doesn't tell him it's bullshit, I'm out of here before 12. So that's fine. Tom plays a bit of the the presentation and then he turns to the guy and he says, Damien, what did you mean when you said whatever it was? And Damien got started. And about six minutes later, Tom flagged him down and said, Damien, tell me something. If you can talk about your subject as well as you've just talked about it to me, why would you do the bullshit that you did on the recording? And Brendan Bird is watching, thinking, he told him it was, he told him it was. And at that moment, somebody knocked on the door and came in and said, uh, Mr. Bird, there's a, an urgent telephone call for. And Brendan said, oh, no, no, it's grand. There's, there's no emergency. It's fine. And he stayed for the rest of the course. But what he had seen was somebody 
discovering just in a six-minute interaction the best of themselves and realising, hey, I don't have to reach for pompous, for conceptual, for high-end. I can just make it interesting by telling stories, giving ex- Oh, gosh, it's that simple and that difficult. Mm. Exactly. Uh, one of the most, um, one of the masters of communication um, in our uh, lifetime has unquestionably, for me anyway, been, been master communicators, has been Gay Byrne. So um, if I said, why is, if I, if I said Gay Byrne is a master communicator, um, I would remember that beautiful, resonant, clear dictioned voice. Uh, a voice, of course, which I think um, voice is, I've always figured voice is really important for television. Absolutely. For television. Yes. Uh, to have a great voice on television. People go, television is a visual medium. For yeah. some reason, I've always felt that a voice is very important for television. You're dead right. And I think he, he had a wonderful voice, a, a beautiful diction, a way of speaking. He looked amazing as well. He had a great sort of, he looked a little bit otherworldly and, and, and he had a, he was sort of elfin looking and, but he kind of looked sometimes like a kind of a prosperous American sort of businessman <laughs> as well with this kind of shiny silver hair and uh, these double breasted suits. And he kind of looked a little bit, a little bit different. There was something about him. And he was an actor, of course, as well. Gabo was an actor and a, and a wannabe actor. But you had a lot to do with Gay Byrne, didn't you? I did. Tell me about your feelings about Gay Byrne, your opinions, your interactions with him, anecdotes, anything you like. He was probably the best boss I ever had. The most unsentimentally appreciative. If he told you you had done well, then you knew you had done well. And I remember one of the things that I did was called the shopping basket, right? And it meant shopping in different shops and comparing prices and all that jazz. But for some reason, this particular week, there was a new product, which was, let's say, a cardboard beaker filled with dried noodles. And I described it as gunge you pour hot water on, which seemed to me to be fairly accurate. Um, Gay enjoyed that and gave it full value. And the people making the gunge that you pour hot water on had a double seizure. (laughs) They went bananas. And the next thing is I'm summoned to the legal department in RTE and I'm gathering up my stuff and my courage and I'm headed off. And the next thing I discover that Gay is walking along with me. Now, there was no reason for him to come with me. And... The bottom line from the lawyer was that Gay was going to have to do a two minute apology the following day, grand, and then the lawyer couldn't resist it. He lifted up the script by a corner and he kind of flapped it around as if it had a smell. And he said, I quite frankly, I find it astonishing that this ever went out on air. And Gay said, why? And he said, well, it's it's full of slang and half sentences. And Gay snatched it out of his hand and said, yes, that's how normal people talk. You may not have met them recently <laughs> and marched out. And as we were going down the corridor, I want to say thank you for you didn't have to come. I'm very grateful. And instead I said, look, do you want me to script the two minutes? Oh, no, I think Uncle Gabriel can do that. <laughs> So the next morning uh, he started off and he said, you may remember yesterday in the shopping basket item, we dealt with a product that I called gunge you pour hot water on. I should never have called it gunge you pour hot water. 
And I swear to God, for the whole two-minute apology, he repeated the offending phrase at least 18 (laughs) times. And there was nothing at that stage that the manufacturers could do except climb into a hole someplace. But that was what he was like. He, He didn't do smarmy compliments or any of that sort of stuff. He was direct. And if you did a really good job on, say, when I was a panellist on The Late Late Show, you'd get this narrow compliment slip with a neatly typed message that was specific in its praise. It would tell you exactly what he really liked about your performance instead of the usual rot where people say, ah, oh, I saw you were great. I know. It means nothing. Yeah, yeah. He was he was defiant at times and slightly anti-establishment in a way. Like he didn't, he would, he would, he would, he would spike about things, wouldn't he? We, 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 there was a sort of, um, there was a kind of a, a spark in him that, that would, that would, that would kick up if, 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 if challenged about, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, um, I don't think he wanted necessarily always to play along with the status quo. I think if it threatened the integrity of any item that he would do, he'd stand straight up for himself and go, no, go to hell. I mean, oh, yeah. I'm, it's brought across to my mind. I mean, Ian Dempsey told me this and it's pro- it's uh, it's it's coming second or third hand, but I think it's true. And it's the idea, you'd be able to back this up as well. The idea that a person would come on to the Late Late Show, they'd be booked and the PR would go, whatever you do, don't ask him about the, about the divorce. <laughs> and Gay would go, no problem at all. First question, I hear you're, 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 I hear you're divorced. I hear that, that that's the, the missus is up and left you. Tell us all about it. Yeah. And so he just didn't care. He went, the, the integrity of the item is more important. And you will remember there was a priest who has reappeared in recent times. I think he's laicized since. But he was working in New York at the outset of the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And he was on the Late Late Show and Gay suddenly turned to him and said, are you gay? And the priest froze in position. And after a minute, he said, I I was promised by your researcher that I wouldn't be asked that. And Gay said, my researchers don't speak for me. Are you gay? Wow. And he did that repeatedly. But the odd thing is, he had no triumphalist memory. I remember at one stage reminding him of a situation where at the last minute, a controversial guest had pulled out and had sent him, sent in a big long statement for Gay to read. And Gay just did this thing directly to camera, explaining how the guy had at 20 minutes before airtime. Uh, decided not to come and then he took up the statement that the guy had sent in and we all braced ourselves to hear gay side reading which he did superbly and instead he took it he tore it this way then he tore it the other way until he had confetti in his hands and then he threw the confetti up in the air and went for an ad break and the funny thing was when I reminded him of that Um, years later he had no recollection of it and other people who worked with him would say that that he dealt with people he dealt with Lang the um, psychiatrist he dealt with people who came on drunk or disagreeable or a truly ghastly human being do you remember the programme about gays and there was a really horrible man up in the back row who said disgusting things and Gay just dealt with him, cut him off, moved on. But later he wouldn't remember having done that. He he had no 
vanity. He had mm. functional pride. Mm. He knew when a programme had gone very well. He knew when it didn't. And the other thing that he had was a ruthless tapping into the pulse of the people of Ireland. Um, and as a scriptwriter for The Gay Burner, I had to learn this mm. early because an item would take off and round about the fourth day, everybody would be ringing in. You'd have a bag full of letters and he would say at the production meeting afterwards, OK, that's dead tomorrow. And some researchers couldn't cope with that and get, but they're still interested. Yes, but they won't be. And he cut things off just before they were about to come down the other side of the bell curve. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Terry, I want to skip forward Uh I really enjoyed the the, the, the the bit about Gay Byrne there um, from even if nothing else from myself and maybe for yourself as well. Um, but I want to skip forward because you the Tom Savage. All right. Your beloved husband, yep. Tom Savage, who passed away. He did six years ago. Six years ago. Like I want I know you're, you're a great communicator. So imagine your listeners don't know this story. Right. But this is a great story. It could be a film itself. Tom was a priest. Not only was he a priest, but he was the priest sent by Cardinal Conway to welcome the British soldiers into Northern Ireland. Right. He he was part of the history of the North. And then he came south to become a, a communications lecturer in the communications clinic, um, which was the Catholic Church at the time, deciding that it needed to come to terms with television. That's right. 60, yeah, I remember they set up their own television and communication systems in the Catholic Church. Uh, and the, the, the place in Booterstown was right. alive with people. The Ryark people yeah. who made documentaries. Uh, lots just of money was put into it. Lots of money. Yeah. And Bunny Carr was recruited as the CEO. And he rang me, I suppose I was 19 or 20 at the time. He rang me and said he wanted me to come in and assess a bunch of parish priests giving sermons. Yeah. And I said, Bunny, I know shag all about sermons. And he said, you'd be grand. And I put in one of my senior lecturers to make sure you don't do anything wrong. So fine, I'm sitting down and I have seven parish priests of enormous age. They were at least maybe 50. And um, <laughs> I got started with them, recorded them. And then this guy um, in full regalia, full priestly regalia, and with a sort of a beetle haircut came in at the back and he <laughs> did he did that gesture. Do you know the one that says, don't make an issue out of my arrival, keep going. So mm. I thought, grand. And I was playing um, a sermon back and I stopped the playback and I said to the priest, talk to me about what you want the people in the congregation to understand. And he got raging out of the blue. I hadn't said anything to him bad at that stage. And he said, the good Lord told us that we were to be the shepherds of his flock. And before I could stop myself, I said, yeah, not the sheepdogs. And there was this deadly silence. The priest at the back that was put in to watch me left. And I'm thinking, oh, God. And then the old priest said to me, OK, but I've been a sheepdog a long time. <laughs> 
teach me how to be a shepherd. And that was fine. At coffee break, I went down to Bunny's office and I said, oh, Jesus, your man left halfway through the first thing. And Bunny said, yeah, he said you were flying, that you didn't need him there over watching over you. And then I noticed that this priest, do you know, you would know better than almost anybody else. Do you know when somebody comes into a group and the gaze pattern shifts and they're the centre of it, but they're not necessarily the performative centre. There's just something about them that makes other people want to impress them or tell a funny story to them or whatever. And Mm. I was watching him and I was fascinated. And then there was one day when Bishop Casey, the late Bishop Casey, came in. Now, my parents regarded uh, Bishop Casey as a Kamalia singing waste of air. And they so I kind of went out into the garden. And this priest, Father Tom Savage, was going up and down reading his breviary. And when he was finished, he came over and I said, you might want to go in because um, Bishop Casey is in there. And he said, no, I would not want to meet Bishop Casey. And he very decidedly would not want to meet me. And I said, why? And he said, because he stole my scholarship And he knows he stole my scholarship. Tom had done research on homelessness in London. Bishop Casey had asked to read it and had then simply uh, stolen it. And every now and again, something like that would come up. And then he would sometimes drop into my family home in Clontarf on his way to visit his sister Teresa in Rohini. And we would talk about anything and everything. And then one day I realised, oh, I've never met anybody like this man. And what I'm feeling is probably means that I'm in love with them. And that was just infinitely sad because I knew he was a great priest and therefore there was no future in it. And then... Did you tell him? I did. And what did he say? (laughs) He smiled at me and he said, oh, Tess... You know, I've loved you from the first day we met. I think now we should get married. And I'm sitting in my parents' sitting room and I'm looking across the room at a man who has never touched me, never kissed me, never even hugged me. And he has just asked me to to marry him. And I kind of said, "Okay," because I'm not stupid. And then he said, after another long silence, he patted the arm of the chair he was in and he said, you wouldn't maybe come over and sit with me? And I went over and sat beside him. And that was the first time that we ever kissed or held hands or touched or anything. And it was three years before he was permitted to leave the priesthood. And during that time, his family had huge problems with it. They very much got over it uh, later. And my father, I I lived at home for the three years because, Mario, you're probably too young to know this concept. But there was this concept in Catholicism that you didn't give scandal. If you were doing something of which the church disapproved, you should at least not do it very obviously. And so I stayed at home in order not to give scandal. My father didn't talk to me for the three years. um, And on one Christmas day, 
there was a package beside my plate at breakfast and it was um, a copy of Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ inscribed in my father's beautiful handwriting to my former daughter. And yet, and yet, about three weeks before we were actually allowed to get married, my father came to me and said he would like to give me away and that he was sorry for how he had treated me for the last three years. Families are just so fascinating. Mm. And afterwards, I was thinking, this was this was a miracle for more than me because I had never, I had always admired my father. He's a man of courage and intellect, but I'd never really liked him that much. But then after we got married and Anton came along, but when Anton was about two, there was a thunderclap of affection between him and his grandfather that lasted until his grandfather died. And I was always so grateful to my father that he he made the move and allowed that to happen because I think Anton's life would have been impoverished if he hadn't had the mischievous, funny, adoring relationship that he had with with Bren, as he called mm. him. Very, very touching, very moving. Thank you for sharing that with me, Terry. I, I really, I could picture every moment of that story. Uh, just to be slightly flippant, it, it does sound like a movie, doesn't it? <laughs> Nobody has yet sought the film rights, mm. but I'm I'm available. Yeah. Um, Tom Savage, your husband, then went on to become one of the most influential and powerful people in broadcasting in Ireland. Am I right in saying that he he created Morning Ireland or that he was? Yeah, he was the first producer of Morning Ireland. And, and he the, created in its modern template. Exactly. Before Morning Ireland, there was Morning Call with <laughs> the bold, the bold Mike Murphy on. Come on, Derek Red Hurley. <laughs> oh, Mike Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> he had a lovely accent and a lovely <laughs> drawl about him. Oh, Gabe, oh, Jesus. And, uh, and, uh, but uh, there was a kind of a, he used to play records in the morning and do, uh, do a bit of skits and have a bit of fun. And it was light relief. But Morning Ireland then was the first time in Ireland we had this, this kind of modern day American stroke British media news programme. He created And that. Tom Savage had this, this sense of it, there should be no kind of subjective performance among the journalists that they should be very clear. Mm. Each item could only be this long. Exactly on that point, you needed to come out. And then I had a car crash when he was about three months into that. And I was completely helpless because everything was broken except my right arm, Mm. jaw, everything. Your jaw again. You've had terrible problems with your mouth. Somebody's (laughs) trying to shut your mouth. You make a fine point. Mm. And Tom at the time, because we were broke, um, he was producing Morning Ireland. Then he was going into Bunny's company and he was training people there. And then after that, he was going over and editing the Irish Medical News, where he was the first, the founder editor. And at the same time, he was managing to mind a completely helpless wife who had insisted on going home with good reason in that the nurses had dropped me on the floor, which was very painful. Um, But he just managed to do all of that. And I still, I mean, if he had just been producing Morning Ireland, it would have been a challenge. But to be running three jobs simultaneously, wow. Wow. Terry, communication, right? 
So, who's the best political communicator on planet Earth you've seen? <laughs> that is a simplistic question. Well, you can Mr. break it down Ruth. then. Well, I will do so with mm. pleasure. Mm. I will tell you where political communications in Ireland right now is in that if you look at somebody like Ivana Batchik, mm. I've known Ivana Batchik for years. She's just a lovely person. And she communicates in an elegant, thoughtful, civilised way and always has. The problem is that now is not the time for that for the leader of the Labour Party. Right. Now is the time for the leader of the Labour Party to be creating a set of that's what we need. This is the Ireland that we need. And the problem is that Ivana, I suspect, I've never worked with her, is is so concentrated on the intellectual South Dublin upper middle class voters who have always loved her that she doesn't realise Ireland has actually shifted in the last five years and there's a whole other audience out there that nobody is owning, including the new Irish. If you then look at two other politicians I'll talk about, Mm -hmm. I have worked with both of them in the past, not in the present. Simon Harris is a fabulous communicator on multi-platforms. He's the one who has copped on quickest to all of the social media stuff. What he has to achieve, however, if he wants to go on and, and to rise further in Finnegal, has nothing to do with social media. Nothing to do with it. It has to do with two, three hundred Finnegal senators, MEPs, TDs. They're his audience and they need, a vast majority of them need to trust him, like him and most importantly, feel better about themselves whenever they've had an encounter with him. Right. So that's the kind of duality. Then you have uh, Michal Martin. Um, And Michal Martin has a thing that's almost unique in politics in that he loves communication. He loves the big debates. He loves interviews. He's completely unbothered if, do you know the device that current affairs interviewers use? But surely, but surely it must, but but surely. I mean, it it reminds me of that old um, airplane uh, movie. Don't call me Shirley. Don't call me Shirley. Mm. Um, But most politicians get slightly shriveled when but surely hits them. Michael Martin doesn't get shriveled at all. He, he knows exactly how he feels, what he believes in, what he won't do. And he stays good humoured, relentless, resilient. He's a very unusual communicator in politics. Mm. OK, answer me this question. Why don't people like you tell politicians to admit that they were wrong when they were wrong? It's a secret. We do. Well, I don't know about anybody else. But I have certainly done that. And in one case, I remember years and years ago, I told the person, 
you need not to go on radio or television because I know you too well and you will start freaking well justifying what you have done because although you've acknowledged to me here that it was a vile thing to do and that it hurt people and you're sorry for it, you will go on and you will try to justify and sure enough, they couldn't resist the lure of the open mic and they started justifying. The capacity to do a simple apology, not to do a political apology. Do you know the political apology that says, I'm really sorry if what I said offended you? Which is not an apology. It's not an apology at all. And the the other thing is when politicians resign, oh God, they haven't paid a blind bit of attention to their families for maybe 30 years and suddenly they announce that they're going to spend more time with their family. I mean, Very if I good. was their family, I'd say shag okay. off. OK, so that's the, so you do tell them, but, yes. then, but then they don't do it. Okay. Well, a couple of times they have done it and yeah. whenever they do do it, Whenever it they do works. it, whenever they do it, I always go, I like that person. Of course. OK. Because... One of the great stories in humanity is redemption. Yes. Is, I'm sorry, I'm abject. I did a stupid thing. But do you know one of the hardest things, sorry, Sherry, for interrupting. Please. Do you know one of the hardest things I've found to do as I get older? Because I've never been able to do it. And I'm trying to do it as I get older. And I, I say these things every so often on the podcast. Call it the personal side, right? Um, and I try to do it and I find it hard and I'm getting to try and do it. Admit that you're wrong. Say sorry to somebody. Unequivocal. Just... Fucking own it. Yes. And, but but no buts. No buts. Just go, I'm sorry. My fault. And I take it back. Or what I did, what I said, I think it was a bit out of line. I'm sorry. You wouldn't believe the response that you get from people. My poll ratings went through the roof. But I presume also that it was much less painful than you expected it was going to be. Yeah, it was. It's actually, it's actually very easy yes. to apologise yes. because... It's It's been an offence to you as well as yeah, to them. Yeah. OK, here's another one for you. It's related to the first question, but it's it's always, always made me crazy. Why do, poli- why do politicians not change their mind? Right. So, for example, the worst thing you can commit in p- politics is called the U-turn. Oh, he's there. He said this last year and now he's doing the U-turn. Keown Carla. Keown Carla last year. He came in here and he said. This. And I'm saying if the situation changes, I will change my mind. Yeah. OK. I mean, I think Dunphy loves uh, Dunphy loves paraphrasing the fellow that said consistency is the hobgoblin of the mediocre mind. Yes. yes. And it's true. You know, you, you, you see the events looking at you and you go, well, they're not the same as last year. They're nothing they say like the same as last year. So I have to change my mind. And what an idiot I would be if I didn't change my mind. You know what I mean? I think that you're touching on a deeper thing here, which is, first of all, um, the people who do the yelling that you've just done tend to be journalists. And they believe that they are making the politician accountable by telling them that they've done a U-turn or the other phrase, the great phrase, a flip-flop. Yeah. And there's a kind of political journalism on radio and television that is never queried. And I think we should be querying it, which is, do you know the kind of interview, let's say it's on radio, that if you turned down the sound so that you couldn't actually know exactly what was being said, but you knew the tone, mm. 
There are broadcasters who you could do that to and you could immediately three items in say, oh, this is a politician because the broadcasters are different when they're talking to politicians. There is an underlying assumption of crookedness, duplicity, Mm. dishonesty, and it's anti-democratic to have any of those. Mm. You know, journalists, broadcasters shouldn't be doing that. No, no, it's true. One other issue that I probably, if you wanted to comment on this, and that is something that struck me as well, and and that is the the way that um, um, polit- political current affairs coverage has now really become under the auspices of entertainment. And what I mean by that is CNN, RTE, Primetime, they all have numbers. They all have ratings. So in other words, how many people watched Primetime last night? 600,000. Oh, that's great. Good numbers. What happened on and and you're just going like, hang on, prime time should not be based on the amount of people that watched it. Yes. Yeah. But no. Sorry, just so just you know, um, Terry kissed my kissed <laughs> kissed her hands and threw them in the air as if what I was saying was gospel. Couldn't hear that on the podcast, but she agreed with me. It's it's quite important that we have this measure, and nobody has stopped and said, hang on a second. First of all, what the hell is public service broadcasting? And it seems to me that the old thing of RT, that its job was to inform, to educate and to entertain in that order, um, needs to be applied to some areas of the programming. Because otherwise, uh, a marvellous writer a few years ago, whose name escapes me, um, Neil something or other, uh, wrote a wonderful book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he predicted without knowing, he predicted Boris Johnson, he predicted um, Donald Trump. And we have uh, fooled ourselves that these were interesting accidents. They were a trend Mm. with which public service and indeed all serious broadcasting Mm. has not come to terms. Agreed. It was a trend. I think there were people back in the 60s and 70s, writers who were writing, a game show host will become the president. And you saw it with Reagan. Reagan, who was a a, a, a television and a, and a film actor. Um, and that kind of televisual face and that televisual delivery, you know, master communicator. Um, and they they realized they realized if we can put that guy in the White House, well then why not the why not the the, the presenter of the the host of The Apprentice? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean it, it, it it's open season. It it the interesting thing, the wonderful thing about Ireland is how ornery and different it is to everyone. Because mm. if you look at the history of people political parties mm. taking television personalities Mm. and running them as Mm. candidates. It has been dire in Ireland. It hasn't worked at all. You had David Thornley, who was magnificent, Mm. charismatic, handsome, Mm. and he got eaten alive by the experience of politics and was dead in his mid-40s. You had more recently George Lee, who probably went into politics believing, okay, I'm an authority on these things. Once I get elected, I'll probably be a minister or at least um, very important. And he suddenly discovered that the minute the election is over, all of the people who have been 
running around with you, introducing you, happy to be in photographs with you, they go back to their real life. And the level of of emotional abandonment must have been horrendous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Terry, listen, we have some callers on the line and they'd love to talk to you. So stick on your headphones now and talk to these callers. You wouldn't believe one of your biggest fans is on the line. Terry, or, uh, Pascal Donahue is on the line. Say hello to him. Say hello to Pascal. Hiya, Pascal. I believe that you are a big fan of a writer I adore named Maeve Brennan. Is this true? Well, she's one of a number of writers I enjoy, Terry. And thank you very much for saying that and pointing that out. I would like to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, I'm really enjoying the conversation. Thank you. And you are an expert, subliminally fantastic communicator yourself. And I'm really enjoying the sit down with Mario. Um, What, how would you rate my communication skills, please? Oh, good question. (laughs) Pascal. Uh, Pascal, Mm. I think that the first thing we need to look at always is one to one face to face. Hmm. And I couldn't tell you the number of people down through the years who have told me that you have in some way been extra kind to them when they were sick. Mm. You bothered to take your car and go see them. And so at that level, you're a wonderful communicator. Um, It will be interesting to see how you manage the election communication, because I suspect you may make one big mistake. Can I tell you the big mistake? Oh, please do. I would really love it if you told me the mistake because I want to apologise for it after you do. Thank you. All right. It's this. You may end up talking about the government's achievements or Fine Gael's achievements. None of us give a sugar about your achievements. We only care about the future. Okay. I won't do that then. I'll just say we've been brutal and we're shite. <laughs> is, that, is that a better place to go? So I'll say that I have it written down here. We are shite. We're brutal. Vote Sinn Féin. Um, I'm a very mild-mannered person, but I was brought up close to Ballymun. Yeah. And I do have an angry side in me, which Leo has been, who's seen from time to time. Leo's the front man and I'm the back man. So... You know, do you think I should every so often reveal my true bleeding self? <laughs> I think that you should be the you that is relevant in the context. And also, I would, can I ask you a question? Yes, of course you can. You've spent the last four or five years um, constantly saying that you have no interest in the leadership. Um, it's bullshit. Of course I do. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. And after that, the presidency. I mean, why do you think I'm the head of the European Council of Ministers? I'm a power-hungry maniac. (laughs) Sorry, I'd only share that with you. Jesus, fantastic. Sorry, George Lee has just rung in. Oh, has he? Yeah, say hello to George. Hiya, George. Hi, Terry. How are you? I am fantastic and getting better by the minute. I agree with you. It was a total disaster for a television person to get into politics. But actually, it was a total disaster for me to even get involved in television. I'll tell you why. When I was minister for the... When I was um, spokesman or uh, economics correspondent with RTE, what happened? We had a crash. We did. Then I was scientific correspondent for RTE. COVID. Do you know what? Do you know what I have? For, I am for RTE now. Oh no! Environment correspondent, Maui, 
Climate change. World is on fire. So please, somebody don't let me ever become rugby correspondent. That's all I hope. <laughs> for all our sakes. <laughs> Goodbye. Good luck. Bye, George. Brilliant. Brilliant, George. Brilliant. That was quick. Uh, who else is on the line? Enda Kenny's on the line. Say hello, oh, Enda. good. Hi, Enda. Um, are you going to do your mimicry of Porrick Flynn today? Well, I can tell you, I'll tell you, I can do a mimicry of anybody you want, Terry Prawn. But first of all, I, w- I will, I will, I'll do that. The Mayo, he said, you try it. You know, I have a house in Bellinahinch, I have a house in Brussels. You try it sometime, running a house and keeping a maid going. Isn't that what he said? But I want to thank you, Terry Prone, for three things. One, giving me my catchphrase. Boom, boom. Thank you. Thank you for that. No, wait a second. No, you gave me No, that. no, no, you no. You gave no. me boom, boom. You're mixing me up with somebody else. Enda, boom, boom, Kenny. You christened me that. Thank you. The second thing you said is, Enda, make sure you point with your fingers. Oh, God. And I remember you told me, if you, if you point with one hand, point with two hands. And if preferably, point in different directions so that nobody knows what the hell you're pointing at. But people think you're assertive if you're pointing. Thank you, Terry. Boom, boom, <laughs> and pointing. And for the third one, you said, whatever you do, get down with the young people. Go to a Bruce Springsteen concert <laughs> and start playing air guitar. The people will love that. And I've been doing all the things ever since. Boom, boom. I've been doing the pointing and the air guitar. Thanks to Terry. <laughs> boom, boom, prone. Thank you, sir. None of this is true. I do need (laughs) to state that loud and clear just in case anybody listening believes it for even half a second. Uh, Bertie Hearn is on the line. Say hello. Hiya, Bertie. How are you doing? How are you? How are you, you, Terry? I'm enjoying the the conversation there and and you're bringing me back, I must say, to to, to, uh, Fergal Quinn there and Super Quinn and the sausages and all that that sort of stuff. And I enjoyed enjoyed the sausage myself at times. But but, but, but I wonder what your your analysis would be now that that all is said and done about the, 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 the pros and cons if you like, of, of, of maybe my, my uh, communication strategy. Uh, and w- 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 would you have any comment to make there or any improvements? Uh, yeah, I would. I mean, it's irrelevant at this stage. That's an interesting you need one. To keep going. But Bertie, what I will say to you is this. Yeah. The most fascinating thing I've seen probably in politics was the day that you came in, we were preparing candidates and canvassers for some general election. I don't know what it was. And you were due to arrive. And I thought it was just going to be famous leader arrives and talks to the troops. And you did three hours of detailed, dogmatic instruction on everything (laughs) from the way to knock on a door, climbing over hedges. You were stunning. And in the beginning... Climbing over hedges, well, (laughs) I've had to do a bit of that in my time, all right. But I never had a bank account, though. (laughs) Of course you didn't. Thanks. All of the people who were watching you started off just watching you and smiling and then suddenly realising, oh, Jesus, I need to be making notes of this. It was fascinating and I wish I had recorded it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for that, Terry. Yeah, Thanks for that, Terry. You can see where you're getting the big bucks. Good luck. Jesus, I was a bit curt. You can be like that sometime. <laughs> Hang on. Who's giving me the big bucks? I'd like to know because I'd like a few more of them. <laughs> You're going to get big bucks for this book. Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure. 
to have you on the Mario Rosenstock podcast and thank you for sharing all those great stories with me. It was a huge pleasure and an education. Thank you, Terry. And my sincere thanks to Terry Prone for coming in and talking to me and being on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I wish her all the best with her great book, um, Caution to the Wind, a memoir, Terry Prone. Um, and of course, thank you to li- for listening. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me, it's uh, mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at giftgrubmario. And please, if you can, tell one other person about this podcast. We're back at the same time, same place next week. 